Welcome once again to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Lana Eagle, all the way from Canada, uh, a Canadian and an Indigenous woman of the White Cap Dakota Nation. Lana's consultancy focuses on relations between the mineral exploitation and mining industry as a whole and the Indigenous communities in Canada. Lana also serves on a board of several corporates where she uses her insights in Indigenous community matters to ensure that their voice is heard in the boardroom. Lana, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Sheila. We haven't seen each other for a while, but I do follow you on um, LinkedIn. So I know that you are reaching hundreds of people with your podcast, and it's a pleasure to be your guest today. Fantastic. So I, I wanted you to just help us uh, as somebody who is knowledgeable about these things. You know, some people use the word indigenous minority groups, others use First Nation peoples. What is the difference, if at all, Lana? Well, I think there is a difference. And in a lot of ways here in Canada, it's how we define ourselves. So I always tell the story of how I grew up being Native and then um, I became First Nations, and then I became Aboriginal. And when the Liberal Party won the last election, we woke up to being called Indigenous people. So, so our name has changed, but at the very core of it, we are Canada's first peoples. And um, many communities define themselves differently. And um, I think it's just a matter of asking, you know, how do you define yourselves? Um, because that's been my experience, you know, when I go out into the field to meet with communities regarding mineral exploration um, and or mining, I always want to know how they prefer to, to, to call themselves. And so, so, so that's usually it. But I think the government of Canada today refers to us as Indigenous peoples. Uh-huh. So, I mean, when we think about uh, this definition in your mind is the underlying rationale for the laws protecting the people based on recognition of first nationhood or is it driven instead by sheer proximity to uh, a mineral or oil and gas development well i think you know as far as the government goes and, and the legal side of that you know we are called um Aboriginal people, and we are called Indigenous people. But, you know, back it up maybe a decade and a half ago, uh, communities began to define themselves as First Nations peoples. So when we look at, you know, the broad um, Indigenous peoples in Canada, I think Indigenous is um, becoming a term that people are widely accepting. But as I said earlier, you know, when you're going into communities and talking to them about mineral exploration and or mining, I think it's preferential to the community to be called what they want to be called. And, um, you know, if we really do want to build a relationship, then we will call them how they define themselves. So in many parts of the country, people, indigenous people are calling themselves, um, First Nations. So um, I don't think it really has anything to do with proximity to a mine or anything of that sort. It's just an ongoing um, 
this has been in discussion for decades and um, and being recognized now today in Canada as as a people that now has human rights. I mean, it's taken us this long to be respected and regarded as having human rights. So, um, you know, in those documents, and uh, we would be referred to as Indigenous. But, but when we look at the Indian Act that governs many of the decisions that um, the governments make, we are referred to as Aboriginal. We refer to our Aboriginal rights and title. And um, if you, you know, look us up, you know, on the internet or um, or any other um, document, you know, we, we could be called First Nation. But I don't think as yet any First Nation has called themselves such and such Indigenous community. So it's really gray, a gray area, but it's always good to know how people define themselves. Right. So, so really, uh, my reading of you is that true, the, the name has evolved uh, and the name might even be written differently in law versus, you know, what a, a current government might say as a function of policy, but you would rather err on the side of giving the people themselves the right to say, this is who we are and this is how we want to be uh, identified, regardless of whether one is dealing with uh, an extractive project or not. It's not really about the extractives, it's about how the people see themselves and how the rest of us must respect that perception. Would that be correct? That would be correct, yes. Right. Thank you. So um, I, I want to come to, you know, you said it was not always like that. We have come here now, we are recognized as having human rights. I mean, this coming to this level of recognition, how did we get there? Was it a function of activism on the part of the affected people? Or is it an altruistic act on the part of either corporations or the Canadian government? Well, I think it's a combination because it was in the 70s that activism began um, to recognize our Aboriginal rights and title. And there were various leaders across this country that led that movement. Um, when we began to focus more on reconciliation and those um, that those studies began, you know, with um, a reconciliation committee that went out to Canada to talk to Indigenous people in various centers um, about their experiences in residential school, um, how they survived. And that was the truth of, of what really happened. Because up until that point, there really wasn't any history taught about Canada's Indigenous peoples. So you could go to school and never hear a word about it unless you perhaps lived in a community that um, had Indigenous people living in the community or neighboring communities were Indigenous. So, so people really didn't know any of our history and how we played a role in this country of our land taken away from us of the mainly because of the resources um, you know Canada wanted uh, the rich resources that that we lived on that you know were part of, of the, the land whether it was timber whether it was um, resources like minerals and and so then that began the process of trying to take that land away from um, indigenous people. So, so in the 1970s, which is what, 50 years ago now, 
the activism began. And I don't think it was really um, held in favor by anyone, whether there was whether it was um, generally Canada or the government of Canada. And um, when we started talking about reconciliation, more of those truths came out. And I think some people began to understand, but but not everyone. And um, it was only recently, back in um, 2021, that where the unmarked graves of children who went to residential school were found um, in various parts of Canada. And that is when general society began to really listen and began to, to ask questions like why why is it this way for indigenous people and and really the bigger question is what what can we do and and so when that began and and canadian voices began to to be heard i think it woke up the conscience of canada and so people began to to wonder like how could this be how could this happen but i think leading up to that perhaps a decade ago there was some altruism there were mining companies that wanted to do the right thing, mineral exploration companies that wanted to do the right thing. And I think in government, you know, if you don't think of it as a, an ideal that exists somewhere in Ottawa, um, but more from the people perspective, you know, I had an opportunity to go to Ottawa this past fall on business and met so many interesting people who had a real heart for, for the Indigenous people of Canada. And, and I think if we let that permeate, the altruism begins to permeate and, and begins to have an effect. And what I've said often in presentations, you know, recently to corporations and to different groups of people is that we can't sit and wait for the government to make decisions on what we should do as a country. We have to rise up and we have to want to make that change, whether it's um, in our own selves, you know, how we view Indigenous people, what we think of them, or whether it's in our working group of people where we go to work every day, or whether it's in our community, but we have to begin to change individually. And I'll just say one more thing. Years ago, I had the opportunity to meet Chief Dr. Robert Joseph as he was preparing in the green room to go on stage to talk about reconciliation at a mining event. Um, he said, you know, reconciliation begins with you. Not me, Lana, but he's talking about our hearts. It has to grab hold of our hearts. And then we have to ask ourselves, what can I do? What can I do better? What can I do more of? And how can I be more inclusive? So that's always stuck with me. And I think each of us as a Canadian or as a global citizen should begin to ask those questions. You know, what can I do? What can I do? And really what, what we're saying is what can I do to make it a better world that I can include all people in my world? It's a, it's a, it's a big step. And it certainly um, is a conscientious step. Mm. So, you know, listening to you, um, I, I'm getting the sense that you see this as really a coming together of parties. Uh, first, the First Nation people, and then, of course, the government, but every, and then the corporates, but everybody recognizing the need uh, for reconciliation and then presumably in the extractive space, translating it into policies and law. So I wanted to speak with you a little more specifically about the what you call the Aboriginal rights. Uh, when it comes to extractives, can you translate for us what these rights are now as embedded in law? Mm -hmm. I think um, 
you know, when we look at what they are based on Supreme Court decisions, based on, you know, what, um, what it says in, you know, in the um, Indian Act, I think we have rights to, um, to the land and their collective rights. So whether it's hunting or fishing or gathering um, and, you know, the, um, it is recognized that that land is collectively owned by a community. So before an extractive can go in and um, start doing what an extractive might want to do, whether it's explore for minerals or whether it's mine for minerals or whether it's to build a pipeline, there has to be an initial conversation, an engagement period where, where relationships are built um, and concerns are raised, issues are raised, and then it's up to the um, to the company to begin to find ways to find solutions. But I think where it works really well is when you involve um, indigenous communities to help you find solutions. So when you're looking at uh, designing a mine and, and what that means, you know, in terms of the issues, the environmental issues for indigenous peoples, and how do we go about finding a solution so that everyone's happy. And, and I think those conversations are starting to happen more and more, but I think they're, they're not always happening to the degree that everyone feels that they're being listened to. Mm. So what, when we think about uh, the, what you said, consultation and engagement with uh, First Nations people, uh, where do you see the consultation? Do you see the consultation as being uh, directly with the company or uh, with the government representing uh, the First Nations people, or for that matter, mediating. The process itself, how, uh, in your experience, does it work in the Canadian environment? Well, I think I think there's a lot of, um, it's complicated it, or complex, maybe is a better word, because, you know, some nations are still waiting for the government to make decisions um, in terms of moving their relationship with the government forward and maybe it's not happening um because you know every jurisdiction has the federal government as well as their jurisdictional government so whether they're a province or a territory and within that those um jurisdictions are um ways in which um those um jurisdictions will engage with communities now, in the province of BC, in um, November 2019, DRIPA became an act, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that's what I was referring to earlier when I said the human rights of Indigenous peoples are finally being realized. Now, it's not only just around natural resource development. There are other things that um, also um, need to be addressed with Indigenous peoples, whether it's... Um, the child welfare or whether it's um, education or whether it's health, those things are really important to Indigenous people. And in many ways, when uh, mineral exploration companies and mining companies come into a territory, they may not be so highly regarded only because of the context of how those um, communities have existed you know, within their relationship with the government. So it might not be a very good relationship. And then now um, a mineral exploration company wants to come in and explore and they may have a lot of um, 
barriers at, at first to to begin that that um, engagement. But that is key because that is that is the only way that you are going to to be able to build a relationship is to go in and have those early conversations, which might not always be pleasant because when you go in and you're that company, you're also answering for all the other um, wrongs that might have been committed against the First Nation in the past. And there's a lot of history, so it, it always hasn't been good history. Even though we as mineral exploration uh, professionals or uh, mining professionals might think we're the greatest industry ever and pat ourselves on the back because we're so advanced in this area, we still have a long ways to go. So it's having those initial conversations, which I will call engagement. Um, when the consultation begins um, around, you know, how this relationship is going to work in terms of, you know, putting together an agreement, um, then again, you know, there's always that piece about the government's role in all of this. So for instance, um, recently I was in the province of Manitoba doing some work with a client and, um, you know, was interesting of all the things that, that they could have said, this is what they said. We would rather have the federal government come in and talk to us. And we don't want to hear from the provincial government because blah, 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 blah. You know, and those concerns and those issues were very real to them because they're living through them today. Um, so, so it becomes, as I said, very, very complex. And uh, so it's, it's trying to weave your way through that. And at that same time, what you're really trying to do is build a level of trust between you, the industry, and the, the community. But it can't always be existing on its own as, as, a, as a solid relationship as long as the government chooses not to um, consult or work with, with the community or um, kind of do it on the periphery, but not really. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, the government um, puts themselves out there to work with communities. And when anyone tries to contact them, it's really challenging to get through to them. So, so it is a complex world. But I think there are some really good actors in all of this that, that are leading the way that they came into this long before it was called um, uh, reconciliation or long before it was called um, ESG, even though ESG doesn't really include Indigenous peoples. Um, long before any of this, they have been at work. Because I think what I've come to understand now through my experience is that it really is about the people. It's about the people that work whether you work for the community, whether you are a leader in the community, whether you work for a corporation, whether that is your responsibility is building relationships or whether you're, you're a government official, it comes down to people and the heart of people that really want to bring their humanity to this and, and to work together. Um, it's hard to do it without that. So it's better to try to do it with that. So you've said a, a mouthful, and I want to follow up on a couple of things. <laughs> sure. uh, first of all, just for the audience, because uh, uh, you and I in the room, by BC, you mean British Columbia. And and, and yes. that is where this Aboriginal Rights Act was passed. Uh, and so just to be clear. Uh, but to, to that point, you make a, a, an, a, an interesting observation, which is that trust is, is critical between uh, either governments, provincial or federal, and for that matter, uh, corporations, because in the absence of that, 
everything that follows from that makes this engagement uh, very difficult. So I, I just wanted to ask you, what are some of the engagement, uh, shall we say, processes necessary to bring down this trust barrier? Because in that sense, to the extent that mining in Canada and different parts of the world has not always been seen to do well by communities, First Nation or not, there is a general decline in trust between communities and corporations. So it's a universal problem. And I wanted to get a sense from you of how you think the processes are by which uh, companies and governments can successfully deal with this mistrust. Well, I think it's very simple, really. Um, you have to have the capacity to be able to listen. And and if you if you're if you don't have the capacity, if you really don't know what that means, it's if you're wanting to go in and have a snap answer for everything and have a solution for everything without any regard for the other person or the other party, you're not a good listener. And I think um, you know, an example of just of what just happened. Yes, I did say a mouthful, but you caught a couple of things that you wanted to circle back to that. I think it's important to be able to do that and and to be to have a open and honest discussion you know if um if you don't know the answer you don't know the answer i mean recently i was in a community and one of the elders had um, some really tough questions and we didn't have the answers but we were able to say we don't have the answer to that but we'll go do some research and we'll get back to you and and that you know it really opened our eyes and it really helped um the people that i was visiting I know we were representing industry. It really helped my colleagues to know that we didn't have to have the answers right away. We could make note of the question, research it and get back to them. And I think that shows a little bit of, um, you know, you're not afraid to, to, to not be knowledgeable about a certain topic, but you are, um, you follow through and you come back and you give the answers. And it just puts you in a situation where you might be a bit vulnerable, but it also, it also makes you more human to show your vulnerability. And, um, and I think the other part of it too, is by actively listening, you try not to put out um, the, um, um, judgment i guess that someone might be asking a really stupid question because if you're sending in engineers who know all about these topics inside and out in in engineer talk and uh, somebody from the community asks a really simple question it might be about water and water might be very important to the community you know this is not the time for the eye roll and and exasperation and that like haven't you asked this question already a hundred times it, it, you have to have patience as well. And so, so those are very, very simple things to go in and, and to, to exercise your um, communication in that way. And I think if people know that you are actively listening, it makes a big difference. It's not like talking to a wall or um, making people feel stupid. It really is about regarding people. Um, and, you know, a lot of the people that are going to be interested in the environment are the elders. And um, as you well know, people mm -hmm. that are aging might come from a different era. And um, maybe they're not all smart about um, social media and the email and, and researching, but maybe they are. And that, that's a nicer surprise, you know, to, to, be with, to be with someone 
who may not on the surface appear to be that knowledgeable, but really is in areas that, that we may not count as important, but are important when it comes to the land, when it comes to wildlife, when it comes to water, they are knowledgeable and they have lived in the land all their lives. So they know how to measure and regard these things that are important to them. Mm. So they, they, as you speak, the words that come to mind, the first you've already uh, used, uh, which is the, the willingness to be vulnerable and expose your limitations, uh, uh, makes people, you know, trust you because they know that you are not posturing uh, and that they too don't have to have all the answers and everybody accepts them. The other that you, you implied, but didn't use is empathy. Uh, which mm -hmm. is the ability to put yourself in the other person's position through, as you said, uh, among others, uh, active uh, listening. And, and, and I think uh, the third most important is this idea of uh, knowledge at uh, grassroots level, which is often discounted, especially when dealing with uh, social fabric and environmental uh, interaction. Uh, we often think because people didn't write books and because people didn't do PhDs, that that necessarily translates into lack of knowledge. But to your point, if we listen actively, you know, and not listen with our own uh, preconceptions, then we can bridge that gap. And with that, we can build trust. I, I should ask you, when you think about this uh, dynamic. You, you you made the point that in some cases a commission might say no, we don't want to deal with the provincial governments. We've had it before. We don't trust. We will only deal with the federal government. But relationships happen at local community level. At what point mm -hmm. and how do we then switch, uh, build enough trust that you know the the face uh, of the relationship is no longer a distant entity in the federal office, but somebody on the ground. I would imagine that is an essential milestone in that relationship uh, cycle. Yeah, I think, I think what's really important is for a company to mandate that relationship building to someone in their company that is more on the, on the ground level. Because yes, it can happen at the corporate level, but may not necessarily happen at the ground level. And at the end of the day, that's where the, the relationship is really going to be at the ground level. So, so how do you do that? And I think it's really giving that responsibility to, to someone at the ground level to build those relationships. But at the same time, you know, when you're um, building a relationship between a company and a community, there are times I believe that the chief and the CEO must talk, must um have an opportunity to socialize in whatever way the community invites the company to participate. And, you know, it's being open to those kinds of things so that a CEO uh, will make time to, um, to do that. So one example today in Canada, and I will um, refrain from naming the company, but the, but the company CEO has made it his um, priority to be, meeting with the communities, you know, in the early stages of building their relationship more often than not, and to, to make himself available. Now, he may not know this. Um, he, he probably does know this, but he, it's the communities that are saying, and this CEO is making time for us, you know, so, so it becomes, wow, like, 
a CEO is making time for us. And um, so I think we have to be able to be open to different ways of building a relationship that are important to the community, because that is important to the community that the CEO is paying attention to them. And so, so it, it, as I said earlier, it's very, it can be very complex, but I think, you know, it's, it's at the heart of it. It is about being human at the heart of it. It's not being afraid to show your humanity and at the heart of it, as you've mentioned, it's about being vulnerable and being human. Hmm. So a, a last question, Lana, has to do uh, with uh, the practice in Canada in which uh, First Nations people receive uh, direct payment from uh, development of extractives. And, and, and I wanted to get a, a sense from you of uh how you think this plays into the sustainability space, given that uh, oil and gas and mineral resources are finite, to the extent the communities receive this payment, what happens uh, thereafter when the uh, resource development ceases? And how does that impact um, perhaps the livelihood of the First Nations people uh, who may currently be beneficiaries of this revenue? Well, and that's a very good question because I think we have to really realize that our industry is is not sustainable in the sense that it won't carry on forever. Um, that said, I think you know further exploration that is taking place around mineral deposits that are being mined are finding you know more mining that can happen. But, you know, um, I think we have to begin to address that more more carefully. So, for instance, you know, if if we, and I'm going to put we, even though I am Indigenous as industry, go in and make all kinds of promises that, you know, here's opportunities for you um, to to be um, your services and your and your goods to be procured for the life of the mine. Um, that only is for a certain period of time. And if someone builds their business entirely on that mine being there, um, their their um, opportunities are finite. So it's being able to, um, I think, help them to build businesses that are more sustainable. So in other words, maybe, maybe that um, company's services, maybe it's heavy equipment operation, can not only be used in mine work, but in other um, areas in the um, in the territory of the First Nations. So for instance, maybe there's some road building um, and maintenance that has to happen. And there's probably other industry that that's taking place um, in that area. So it could be logging, maybe it's another mine, but I think there's always that opportunity for, um, for services that can be um, used by other companies and other industries. So we have to be able to find a way to help them become more flexible in building their business and you know who their future clients might be. Now, in another area, uh, not so much related to the actual business of the mine, but as the community develops and, and um, people find other jobs in the area, maybe there's opportunity to develop um, other kinds of industry that may not necessarily be mining, like for instance, hairdressing or, um, 
a confectionery shop, something that is in the community because the community is growing um, and building on the wealth that you know a, a worker at the mine might make. And so, so there's an opportunity to develop the economy that may not necessarily be mining related, but my, my, the mining company can help to uh, make that happen. They can be a catalyst in moving this forward. So, so it is about uh, not limiting the possibilities and the opportunities to life of mine, but to think beyond that and what that might look like and, and how can that happen. And I think those conversations need to involve the community because you know, in the end, they are making decisions that will help their um, their citizens' um, um, economic opportunities. It, it ensures the longevity of those opportunities beyond the mine. That's I hope that answers. It certainly does, uh, because what it what what you're essentially saying is the mine becomes the flywheel, but it isn't an end in itself. And 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 exactly. that I think is how we would then. Uh, essentially make the opportunities finite and not the mine itself and the economic ecosystem. So Lana, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extracted podcast and sharing with us uh, the Canadian experience. It was very enjoyable. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to be here, Sheila. And I wish you a very successful 2023.